This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Joining me today as co-host is Dr. Anjali Bagra, a colleague of mine and internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine. Bias, harassment, and discrimination have been topics dominating the news lately, especially in the political arena and the entertainment industry. But are these issues found in healthcare? The answer to that question is yes, and we will be spending our time talking about this today. Uh, we are pleased to have as our guest Dr. Sharon Hayes, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist. Angelie, this is an important topic, and we need to accept the fact that the healthcare system is not immune to these problems. Absolutely, I fully agree. And today we will focus on the movement known as Time's Up Healthcare. Our guest for today is very well qualified to lead this discussion, Dr. Sharon Hayes. She's the director of the Mayo Clinic Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks for being here. So, Sharon, can you describe Time's Up Healthcare? So, Time's Up Healthcare is a subgroup of Time's Up, which is a, a national nonprofit that was started a couple of years ago, mainly by Hollywood actresses, to address discrimination, bias, pay inequity, and other things that were happening in the entertainment industry. Since then, um, a number of other groups have formed. and. Time's Up Healthcare was important to form because it is one of the largest employers nationally of women, if we think of the whole healthcare mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. Well, who started the movement? Well, Time's Up was started by actresses. Time's Up Healthcare, um, there are some st a steering committee of a group of women physicians, and then a larger group of which I am one of 50 of us who represent physicians, nurses, PAs, um, uh, unions, dentists, all pe pharmacists, all people who are part of healthcare. And I think that one of the things that we as founders really wanted to make sure is that this, the intersectionality and the depth and breadth of women working in healthcare, many who are not as privileged as being a physician, mm -hmm. um, who are doing home healthcare or who are working in nursing homes. And so the overall aim of Time's Up Healthcare is to ensure that there is a safe, equitable, and dignified workplace for all people, but particularly for women in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic, and that really sounds like a very inclusive representation. Could you tell us a little bit more about the goals of Time's Up Healthcare? So, for Time's Up Healthcare, we really are uh, looking to create workplaces for those who care for our patients and us, right, when we're patients, to be, um, to be safe, to be, uh, so people can do their best work. And that requires that they're free of bias and harassment. It means that women are paid equitably for the work that they do and that they are valued in society. And that then leads to helping organizations um, set up practices and in cultures and environment, the climate for that respect, that mutual respect, but also systems and procedures. So when there is bias or discrimination or sexual harassment, there are processes that can be put in place that will result in consistent messaging, consistent action, and hopefully reducing those effects. 
Well, Sharon, certainly there is evidence of discrimination in medicine. Is Times Up Healthcare limited to gender discrimination? It really, that is the focus. Although it is, I, I'm, I'm glad you talked about gender. It's not necessarily sexual. One of the other intersectionalities was to make sure that um, uh, gender, non-binary, and non-conforming individuals are also included in this because uh, they have an added burden often in terms of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And, and how does this gender discrimination and harassment in healthcare compare with other industries? Well, sadly, um, we don't measure up very well. Mm. Um, when the National Academy of Science, um, Engineering, and Medicine came out with a report last year, and they looked at at students, graduate students in engineering, medical students, and other, um, they found that medical students were almost twice as likely to experience sexual harassment during their schooling. So it starts early. Mm -hmm. And among those individuals who have accessed uh, help from the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, people who are from the healthcare sector are second only to the entertainment sector. So I think that we are certainly not immune. Mm -hmm. And would you say, is there any difference in academic versus non-academic settings in healthcare? Actually, there are differences. I don't know if you would say one's better, or, but it's mm -hmm. different. Um, okay. I, I think that many of the vast majority of women in healthcare actually work in fairly low-wage jobs um, that are direct patient care and often are the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, I heard of uh, a, a group of nursing assistants working in a, a nursing home whose supervisor was very concerned about her metrics about falls and threatened to fire these individuals if a patient fell on their watch. And if you're living in fear, that's not necessarily gender harassment, but that is a climate in which you don't necessarily want to be a patient and you certainly don't want to be an employee. We've heard that there is significant sexual harassment going on in the workplace of the healthcare system. How have women dealt with this? Because this has been going on for many years. Uh, are, have they been reporting it? Have they just been accepting it? What? How have they been dealing with this? So, Daryl, they've done all of those. So um, sometimes they have reported it, and it's been brushed under the rug, and that sends a chilling effect to anyone else who experiences mm -hmm. it because they, there's no confidence that an organization is going to deal effectively with it. So that that's, that's one thing. Um, the other is sometimes particularly where there's a real power differential, it's not reported at all. Think about if you are a learner and you're um, your supervisor or you are uh, a nurse and, and a physician uh, is the perpetrator, you may fear for your job or retaliation unless there's some really clear policies and you're confident that your organization's gonna deal with it. Um, so it's been reported with sometimes suboptimal effects mm -hmm. and then often then not reported for yeah. fear. If they are learners, uh, they are covered under Title IX, which has an added layer of, of confidentiality, of process, and any, any school mm -hmm. that has learners will have that. And for, for those who are dealing with learners or have a learner come to them or are a learner who experiences this, that is the first stop that they should make is with their Title IX officer, whatever organization they are. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's change directions just a little bit. We've been talking about sexual harassment, but let's talk about uh, the gender gap in the healthcare industry um, in terms of pay. Yeah, but the gender pay gap um, 
is uh, is important for a number of reasons. One, that there is one, but that so many, if you are thinking about in healthcare, about 80% of the healthcare workforce is women, if you consider nurses and all of mm-hmm. the in-home health aid. But the power differential is very gendered, and 11% of uh, CEOs are women, mm-hmm. and um, very few department chairs in academic healthcare. And women come out of the gate. There's evidence that women come out of the gate after finishing their residency making less money. And this is even after controlling for academic rank, for part-time status, for all of those things. The solutions are complex because there are obviously differences in the specialties that women go into versus men. And in fact, the lowest paid specialties tend to be ones which are female predominant and they pay men and women lower in those and and the flip side i think the important thing as we're talking about it is that there's gender pay equity so there is when we're comparing apples to apples that women and men make the same that will be better for our healthcare system, better for our patients and better for families because women are often the main breadwinner so that's one of the three top tenets of time, Time's Up Healthcare is to look toward establishing gender pay equity at all layers of healthcare. Well, I imagine since we're on this topic, to, to make things even worse, I, I suspect that more women than men take time off for having children, mm-hmm. raising mm-hmm. families. When they come back, are they typically starting at the bottom again or can they pick up where they left off? It, well, it's complicated in many. Um, so at a place like Mayo Clinic, well, we, where we are all salaried, um, somebody who steps out, usually they don't step out, but for a, a maternity leave. Sure. But when they come back, they come up back at the same pay and actually don't lose pay. But importantly, there are many other jobs and even um, academic centers where there is a productivity base for salary. And so a woman who's more likely in her 30s to take time off than a man mm-hmm. um, her salary and her bonus for the next year is set based on mm-hmm. her missing three months of productivity the prior year. And that has um, mathematical ongoing effects. Mm-hmm. She may never catch up. And so I think we have to recognize that as a society, I mean, women are the only ones who can have babies. If we want the future, that we somehow have to figure out to make it equitable for all because, you know, Dads want their wives to, you know, the moms to do well as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there are other unintended consequences in the career curves of women for all these reasons. And I, um, I wonder how Time's Up Healthcare is addressing the other gender inequity, which is frequently talked about, and that's representation of women in top leadership roles uh, within healthcare. And what kind of evidence? Is there evidence to show that there is a gap? And if there is a gap, how, how much is that and what are some strategies to address it? So in both academic medicine and in private practice, so in, in where the vast majority of women are, are practicing, there are leadership gaps. So if you look at academic medicine, there's fewer women who are deans, mm-hmm. who are chairs of departments and all of that. And that's, it's compl- that too is complicated. Um, many there are requirements for certain years of service or being at a certain academic rank or having other tickets that because of the system being a little bit un- uneven, women have less access to. In, um, and some of the same things occur on, on the private practice uh, side. Mm-hmm. So I think looking at how 
this is going to take a deep soul-searching look at how medicine, if, if it starts in medical school, if it starts in nursing school, how are we going to frame this so healthcare can be a leader in gender equity, both on the leadership and setting a path for men and women graduating from nursing school, dental school, or medical school, that they're going to move forward and, and be on equal footing? I think that is so true. So having more deliberate mentoring, coaching, sponsoring, all of those three things combined would probably be a more systems-driven solution to that. And that leads to my next question. Is there inequity in research grants for women compared to men? So there's a, been a fair amount of publications um, recently um, that have suggested, whether it's NIH, you know, K mm -hmm. awards, um, that both women and minorities at study section are less likely to be granted awards. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an, it's an interesting thing, and how much of that is the quality of mentorship? Again, it, there may be multi unconscious or conscious bias. Um, we even looked at our own, uh, Dr. Jennifer Westendorf looked at women and men at Mayo even seeking or receiving um, industry grants for research. Women are far less likely to do that. Now, is it because they're not applying? Is it because they don't know the people who are doing that? But those are good data because if that's good for Mayo. More money coming in for research, regardless of who gets it, is good for Mayo. So that allows organizations who are supportive of Time's Up, who are supportive of gender equity to say, well, yeah, it's good for women, but it's good for us too, because if we can um, accelerate the pace of research practice and education for our female staff, that's good for everybody. And I think we we uh, started a whole office to address this. I believe Dr. Westendorf mm -hmm. heads a whole office. Do you want to just fill us in a about that. So Dr. Jennifer Westendorf is, um, leads our Office for Diversity and Inclusion in Research, and it really is focused on the climate of research for women and minorities and, and the representation, but also looking at some of those processes. How can we accelerate the success of women in getting and bringing NIH grants into Mayo Clinic and being PIs um, through training, innovation, um, skill building and mentoring. So it's, it's exciting because all of this is kind of coming together. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. Join me and other leaders at the upcoming Equity and Inclusion in Healthcare Conference, hosted October 25th and 26th, right here in Rochester, Minnesota. Course highlights include evidence-based processes to identify and address bias, roundtable discussions and experiential workshops, and development of new skills to increase the recruitment, retention, promotion, and development of talent within diverse workforce populations and our patient population. For more information, visit ce.mayo.edu slash equity2019. Catch us weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Well, you mentioned unconscious bias, and we know that there's gender differences in your own field in how a male versus a female can present with the same symptoms of chest pain and how much of an evaluation each gender right. gets. Exactly. And I think that anytime we talk about the workforce, um, and particularly because we're Mayo Clinic and the needs of the patient come first, but for almost any healthcare provider, that is our goal, is mm -hmm. to improve the quality uh, of, uh, of life for our patients, is 
none of these things, any inequity in the workforce, any hostile workforce, or um, affects adversely the care of our patients. We can't bring our full self to bear to care for them. Now, I know that the uh, Time's Up Healthcare organization has a legal defense fund. What, what is this used for? So it is for individuals who may have um, experienced gender discrimination or harassment who do not have the funds to uh, address it. So part of all of the funding that goes to Time's Up and to Time's Up Healthcare, actually a portion of it goes um, and it is used for um, legal defense for, for women who are going up against employers often. Okay. So, I mean, these are just fantastic resources at so many different levels, national, institutional, and uh, multiple other levels. I wonder what the, the, the person who experiences these kind of harassments or discrimination, what, what, what should a person who's experiencing sexual harassment at work, what tips might you have? What should they do to seek help? Well, it depends on where they work and what the structure is. but. Typically, um, going to their immediate supervisor, if that is not the perpetrator, um, uh, talking to HR, um, if they are a learner, talking to um, their, uh, their Title IX. In some practices, that may be, um, there may be an office manager, or there may be in a big academic medical center, there may actually be an office for this type of, of thing. I think that that's easy to say, oh, go to one yeah. of these individuals. I, I think the, the, the fact is that often these, are, these issues are very subtle. These are not, you know, yes, there are the egregious ones where, where people are coerced or who are, uh, have things that are very obvious that any of us would say mm -hmm. that's wrong. Others, it, it, it's more subtle. Like this was a supervisor. We had a consensual relationship. Now we no longer have a consensual relationship, and I'm being discriminated against. So that's what is so fraught about many of these situations. And I would encourage women, though, not to suffer in silence. Okay, now that that's a very strong message, and we would reinforce that in every possible way. So these are all potential ways to um, approach when when you experience harassment by an employee or a colleague, what what can one do or what should one do when uh, there's sexual harassment or discrimination by a patient? So um, one, if you are a healthcare organization or a leader of one um, or a practice, you should have a practice and know how you're gonna answer this question. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. One of the things we found a couple of years ago at Mayo is as the rate of some of these incidents increasing, we realized we didn't have a policy. We had about 20 policies to protect patients from us, and we didn't have a policy really that mm -hmm. dealt with this, whether it was racial bias or sexual bias or, or, or harassment, and realized that that was a gap. And so um, we have an obligation as an employer um, to provide a equitable, safe, dignified workplace for our employees and not a hostile workplace, which could be created if we let patients treat our staff in an inappropriate way. So having a policy that states how we're going to act, having a way to report, even if it's um, uh, anonymously, are all really important. And we put that policy into place in late 2017 and are still really changing the culture because we still have employees that um, put up with things from patients that they really shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. Since we're on the topic of patients, 
how do we handle a patient who calls for an appointment and says, I want to see a white male doctor? So our policy covered both the harassment, but it also covered this incident. And we had a wide range of responses prior to the policy. We had people who were actually asking, do you want a man or a woman? Um, <laughs> which we, we did was out of policy at the time and others who were pretty rigid. So how we approach it is we actually provide a, a script. One, we say, no, you can't choose your healthcare team members based on non-skill-based knowledge. So um, you can't pick gender, race, ethnicity, um, it, unless that had some bearing on your care. We provide, because often these questions come to an appointment coordinator, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So this is somebody who's got <clears throat> scripts, a lot of scripts, maybe a high school graduate, and these are nuanced conversations. So what we provide is some, um, some ways for them to respond by talking about how all of the team members are qualified, they will be cared for by a team, and Mayo supports its, um, its workers, its staff, and we don't tolerate that. And um, we've got videos and training to help them with that. And then also that they would elevate that. Um, and we have declined appointments when people, um, and those individuals mm -hmm. used to sometimes go down to our Office of Patient Experience and complain. And then actually it would come back to that appointment coordinator that somehow he or she did something wrong. And now we're more aligned and say, so patient experience says, you know, you we don't do that. We don't give you a white male American if that's what you request. We're not perfect. Um, and it has been a culture shift, as you might imagine, from the needs of the patient to come first. And how I like to describe it is we are still meeting all the needs because there are exceptions. Obviously, sometimes the type of provider is really important if you've got PTSD or a, a prior trauma or, what, or religious beliefs. But we don't exceed to just the wants of the patient. And often this is what that comes down to. Let's, let's turn the tables just a bit. I am a female. No, you're not. Well, pretend, <laughs> pretend, pretend. Pretend game. Pretend. I'm a female calling my gynecologist for an appointment. How do you deal with the person who says, I am a consumer and I am purchasing a service and I should, as a consumer, be able to choose who is providing my service and I want a female provider for my gynecologic exam? So... This is covered by the policy as well, but this was probably the, the request that generated the most conversation mm -hmm. um, uh, as we presented the policy, like, well, you mean my wife can't just see a woman gynecologist or I can't? And I think we, we think it through um, on a couple of manners. First of all, I'm sure that there are practices in which someone can do that and maybe who cater to patients who want that. But we made a decision at Mayo Clinic that that wasn't the way that we were going to go because we do not provide just a, a commodity. So I'll stay there. We provide excellent care, which may take multiple team members. So we took from that premise. Um, there were other things. We have an obligation to our learners. If we let, you know, taking it to the extreme, if every single woman who wanted gynecologic care got the woman that they asked for, who we would be abrogating our, our um, obligation to our male learners in OB-GYN. So that's one way to look at it. We have, other, we have obligations to other people other than the patient. We also know that our female providers um, 
nurses and doctors who have predominantly female, um, you know, in primary care, and they now have a panel that's 80% women and the men have 20% women, that is a disproportionate uh, burden. Um, women have more comorbidities, more complaints, and need more visits. So it actually sets up an inequitable process in primary care. And, uh, you know, what I, uh, as a female physician, I know that if I ask for a woman, I'm often, it's assumed, oh, that's okay, she just feels more comfortable with a woman, whereas if my husband were, were to ask for a man, he'd be uh, accused of being biased. And so that double standard we try to take a step back from. So that's probably a longer answer, but it, it is more nuanced, and I think it, it touches on several things in that um, we at Mayo Clinic, and I think at most places that may be listening to this podcast, we're going to provide the best patient care that we can with the people that we have. And sometimes the best patient care is not rearranging the team to meet that patient's want. Um, I couldn't agree more with that in my role as a medical educator. I do think we have a very strong obligation for developing our next generation of um, providers and physicians, and it is certainly a disservice if they don't have the opportunity to participate in that. Uh, so shifting gears back back to times of healthcare, uh, we know and uh, that there are some institutions already involved in endorsing it. Could you could you um, share with us how many medical institutions and if at all any national organizations are involved in endorsed times of healthcare? So Mayo Clinic was a founding signatory. We were really proud of that. There were eight founding signatories, and su subsequent to that, uh, the last time I looked at the website, there were another six or seven, and included not just academic medical centers, but some community health centers and others that cater to. So I think that's really what we wanted. Um, so signatories are employers, and then um, there are partners, and that might be um, the American Nursing Association or, or those national organizations who might sign on to say we support the tenants of it and then individuals can be members by just going on the website and signing up and then you get an, uh, a, an email a newsletter that keeps you up on it so I think Mayo's decision to be a part of this uh, was led a lot by leadership by Dr. Farusha mm -hmm. who felt like this was the future of where we wanted to be on the right side of history I think it also spoke to the fact that we've got some policies already. We're not perfect, but we are looking at pay equity for our physicians. We are looking at, we have strongly beefed up our um, processes mm -hmm. for addressing sexual harassment claims. We're tracking them. We do a monthly report that is shared. So, um, and honestly, our core values of teamwork and mutual respect are completely aligned with wanting a safe, equitable, and dignified workplace. Sharon, one last question, a chance to summarize everything. What needs to change in the healthcare industry to address the bias, the harassment, and the discrimination that we're seeing? Well, a lot, but I think there's, I think changing processes and policies is a great start. I think teamwork, true teamwork, as opposed to the hierarchy that is so strong in medicine, and that's not going to change overnight. But I do think when we embrace the teamwork, that it become, we become more easily understandable about the value of everyone, and it makes that power differential less likely for um, harassment to occur, and more likely that bystanders will step up and not let it spread. And those are aspirational, honestly, but I, I think that those are important. It, it is part of the healthcare culture that perpetuates some of this. 
We've been talking about Time's Up Healthcare with Dr. Sharon Hayes. Sharon, thank you so much for sharing this important information with us. And Angelie, thank you so much for co-hosting today's episode. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The pleasure's mine. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.